if you could wave a magic wand over the over the UK planning system, how would you how would you reform it? If I made you housing minister, if you made me housing minister, then, yeah, it depends how long I had the, the, the portfolio. The, yeah, the probably not very long, not given very the. Long. Uh... <laughs> but no, I went. Yes, please. I would love to accept the job. And then straight away, there was alarm bells up for me on the first day. Nobody was there to meet me. At that point, I knew I'd made the terrible choice. It gave me the opportunity to reflect what was important to me. I resigned and I left this job, and I had nothing to to see the complexity of the problem solving and the issues our members face daily. So what, what challenges are your members facing on the whole? At the moment, it's things like... Construction seems to be in the forefront of every politician's mind at the moment. <laughs> Have they got the resources they need in the right places to you know, assess planning application in a timely fashion, which gives everybody the, the confidence to get, on, to get the spades in the ground and get things built. Hi, Ian. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Um, first question, as we always ask, what's the hardest change that's happened to you in your life? The hardest change? Um, it was an interesting one, was career-wise. Uh, firstly, it's great to be here, actually, Karen. I think it was, I was just thinking it's nice to do something like this. Um, and actually, this is not the hardest change for me doing this, but the one I was thinking was um, it was a career change. Sorry, it wasn't a career change. It was a change of job. And I, I, I'd seen this opportunity. Um, I'd, I was previously working for a local authority and I'd been there a number of years, three or four years. And uh, I was commuting every single day. I loved the job and I loved everything that I was doing in it, but I was every day and I was like, it was an hour there, an hour back. And I was then staying late for meetings, council meetings, all of those sort of things. And I'd seen a job where there was an opportunity to um, work closer to home, meant that I would have more time at home with you know family, all the things that you, you, you'd like. Um, and I went for the interview and um, went through the process and offered me the job. And I went, yes, please. I would love to accept the job. Um, handed my notice in in my, my previous job. Went along on my, so a couple of months, maybe two months notice, went along on my first day. And then straight away, there was alarm bells up for me on the first day where nobody was there to meet me. I turned up at this organisation and they were like, oh, we didn't know you were still right sorry there's nothing here for you i was like oh, okay so it's oh, fine you know it, and um it was almost instantaneously at that point i knew i'd made the terrible choice and within the rest of the, by the afternoon i knew it was the wrong job and the wrong organization for me at that time and by the end and i think i i ended up leaving before i'd even complete my probation period because it just wasn't the right it was just wasn't the right fit it, it was there were too many things, too many flags for me. But what it did do, um, it gave me the opportunity to reflect what was important to me. And I think that was for me was, yeah, it was the hard because, you know, I in effect made myself redundant. I left, I resigned and I left this job and I had nothing. And that's quite a scary place to be. But I needed to do it for my mental health at that time because it, this, it was just not a... Um, it wasn't a positive experience. The people, I, some of the people I worked with were lovely, but it just wasn't a positive experience for many reasons. So uh, that was the hardest change because I'd left some stability in things where I had a career that was going in one direction. And then, in effect, I sabotaged myself by mistake. But it was learning from it. When you say sabotage yourself, I mean, I'm guessing you went through an interview process for that. Yeah. For, for it, that role. And, and it, I find it, 
well, talk to me about obviously those flags didn't occur to you or or show themselves perhaps in the interview process. And, and so as I reflect now, I think maybe they did, but it might have been that I was so keen to get mm. a job closer to home. I literally went for, went for the first thing and accepted the first thing that came up. Um, so there was an interview process and, you know, and, and there was, and I think it's, but it's always, it's always nice when someone shows an interest in you, isn't it? And you think, oh, they want me. That's a nice feeling. Yeah. And, um, and I think it was, in, I, I sometimes think it was almost the right job at the wrong time. And I think if there were circumstances that changed within the organization, um, then it would have been a different role, but it was, yeah, I think it was, that was the change for me was that it was the wrong job. I jumped, I went for the first thing that came up that was, that got me back. And that was the mistake. So the learning was for all my other future jobs I've ever gone for is like, right, hang on, step back. Is this, is this right for me? Am I just doing it for doing its sake? Or is it because it meets with what I, the values I have? So that was, you know, that is something that has, again, on reflection, what that has done has really helped me, but all the other future jobs I've ever had, because it's made me realise what's important to me and how I'm looking for organisations. I want to work for places and for with people who have the same values I do. So that's always been important since then. Were they um, were they shocked when you decided to leave quite soon? Uh, no, I think there was a, there was a, challenges within the structure of the organization i will say mm. and um, and they became apparent quite quickly to me and um i look back again with hindsight on the, the organization and in some ways um almost i was justified with some of the concerns i had because there had been issues at, at that organization so it was almost like actually i my, my radar was right there was a i, I could have it wasn't a case of me um not you know not sticking it out and, and yeah it was it was the right thing to do so yeah i look back on reflection and and it was the right it was the right thing didn't feel right at the time and it put a lot of stress on a lot you know my my, my family and joe my partner because we you know that was it i was making myself redundant but um yeah it was it was there was definitely a lot of learning for me for that one talking about learning i'm going to go back you didn't studied human geography well, yes. What, why human geography? Um, why human geography? Um, I find it fascinating to understand why things happen. The, the, um, the relationship between space and time, not in a metaphysical way or in a you know in a, a science way, but in more of a why things happen the way they do. What are the patterns? Why? Why, if that happens there, does that influence something over there? So it was even little thing like I, I loved the idea when I was at university. I was re- researching about um, the, why Portsmouth. So I went to university in Portsmouth. And it was a brilliant three years of my life. I met some really good friends that I'm still friends with twenty plus years later. And they were doing human. They, they were doing physical geography, and it was very much science. Like these are the rules. You know, it can't be this or that. And in some ways, it reflects the importance to me about change and understanding. Was that's why human geography? Because you, there is change constantly. You can't really apply the same science to things in a A plus B equals C type way. So human geography has always appealed because, or geography more generally, around yeah, understanding places through space and time. So why is that like that? And again, as I was saying at um, Portsmouth, it was just something little, right? I remember sitting in a lecture and they were talking about 
well, the reason that the Royal Navy is in Portsmouth, so the reason the Royal Navy is in Portsmouth has meant all these other businesses have moved to Portsmouth. And I'd never considered the impact of things like that. And it was such an eye-opener. So now when I see places, I go, that's there because of that. There. So a decision that was made 500 years ago by Henry the seventh, it might be eighth, one of the Henrys, to put his, you know, his navy there meant that you attracted things like IBM. IBM are there because of the nature of the the technology that's required as the navy's, you know, gone on. And then the reason why the harbour is really deep for the navy means that you can have these big ferries going in. But the impact of that means tourism happens, and then from that, all of these things that that spin out. And I find things like that absolutely fascinating. And I didn't quite get that with the physical geography side of thing. So, so what was the plan? I'm going to study human geography and then I'm going to do. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, if I'm honest, and I think maybe um, again, I reflect. I think I went to partly went to university because I didn't know what to do when I finished my A levels. Same. <laughs> so you're like, right? If I go to university, that's going to give me three years. Right? That'll give me another three years, at least three years, to decide what I want to do. And um, so I, I, and actually, um, so yeah, university, but there wasn't a plan because I think that's when, and again, I, I say friends from university, they were very much clear in my own mind what they were going to use their degree for. And I was really struggling about, well, what do I want to do? What's important to to me? And I didn't know, but I did know what I was interested in was th- things related to human geography. So understanding again, space and time. So um more around social inclusion i found social inclusion um really uh, really interesting about how decisions impact you can do things in a positive way to make improvements for people and so i was just looking around um so i sort of fell into um economic development with a local authority it was one of my first jobs uh, first proper jobs i had jobs within local authorities but I, I it was like i remember i was doing like um filing for I, I got on a temporary when I when I graduated, I came back and I thought, oh, well, I got a, so I just got on this temporary um like register for employers on the Leicester City Council was at the time. And um they went, Oh, we've got a job in social services. And I was like, oh, well, at least it gets me in the council and I've got some work and it's fine. But what it was was I was I went it was it was a great job. I actually really enjoyed it. It was it was going along in the social services team and then when the social workers needed the files for the, the people they were working, they were seeing. We'd go and get them. And then what we would do is the paperwork would come back in. We would then file it back and put them back in. And um, it was fascinating because to speak with us, to, to, again, and I think it's that understanding those, those challenges around social inclusion, some of the, those people that were the challenges that when you speak, they were really facing. So that was that had an impact on me. Um, the reason it's interesting working there was it's in the grave. It was in the Greyfriars building, which the car park we would walk past was where they found Richard the Third. So I quite like, you know, that was always quite a nice. Oh, I worked in there. Yeah, maybe I was that far away from him type thing. Um, but what that did do working there was got me into understanding how local authorities or councils worked, um, which was helpful. So when I got my um, my first proper job with uh, with them with Leicester City Council helping uh, the research team sorry, Leicestershire County Council, sorry, doing some research on um, some of the, sort of the, well, it was their research information team is what it was called. It was looking at all things to do with planning applications or uh, economic development areas, but it wasn't, I was doing the, re- and I found it fascinating because again, it gave me an insight into how these organisations are influencing people's lives without necessarily people being fully aware of those changes happening around them. Um, 
so yeah that that so for the first what five ten years it's local authority so it was the from there i worked at charmwood borough council in economic development um, and i love that because it was very much i was it was all about again joining things up bringing things together um and then moving from there to in a slightly different role but around much closer to social inclusion and working in, in in some of the um areas of of Loughborough or the Chalmers Borough which had challenges with um deprivation so they were on the indices so there was an intensive amount of uh, investment going in and it was working with the part the stakeholders to improve the systems because that's one thing coming back to what you're saying about human geography why human geography seeing the patterns of joining things up to you know you're going to make a, the benefits you'll get from that I could apply that uh, into that role uh, and then from there I moved to Ketchumborough Council because I was very keen on change so when you look at my CV if you look at my CV um, I moved jobs and my current employer probably won't want to hear this but I moved jobs like within usually within two and a half years three years uh, because I'm looking for the next thing I always find it quite interesting um, to you know to learn and move on and take that learning and, and, and progress so I moved to Ketchumborough Council, still within local authority, but again, it was partnerships manager. And I loved it because it was so broad in, there were so many different things I was involved with, from running a tourist information centre and supporting the team there through to voluntary sector grants and funding. Absolutely incredible. Um, and then that was then, but I was there for actually three and a half years. So it was one of the longest jobs I'd had at that point. But that's where after three and a half years, the two-hour commute every day was getting a bit much as then then I looked to move um and then popped up in at the Prince's Trust the Woodland Trust and then oh I was trying to get then I'd worked at Centrico for British Gas and um Chartered Institute of Building and I'm currently at the Federation of Master Builders so they're quite diverse in their organizations but I think the one thing that brings them all together is that um they're all about collaboration each of those roles are about collaboration and making an improvement so yeah there's, there's almost like there was no careers advice on when i graduated oh by the way these are the steps they have been um someone described it to me as a it's not a straight path it's like a oh it, it's it's a path it's not straight you, know, you go off and you know, tangent then you come back and you move around but it's um again and then i look back as you were saying at the start of the conversation that if i hadn't gone for that job that I didn't like, then I wouldn't be sat here talking to you today because I've had all that learning, which I've been able to apply in my life. So I'm trying to take a much more positive outlook on that. I think there's, a, I think there is some career advice for anyone you know, in terms of certainly, um, you know, studying human geography and then ha and you know having the career you've had as diverse as it is so mm. far it just shows that you know you don't have to choose that path really early on. Um, you know and, and stick to it um you talked about chartered institute of building so you were there for before your current role for for five years so quite a long stay yeah. for you um so talk to me about what what the chartered institute of building does and what your what your role was there so yeah it, it, it's an interesting so well, my my ciob colleagues um in my team i would when i first joined them i said oh, i might be here very long i'll be i'll <laughs> I'll be two years and I'll, I'll be gone. Now, admittedly, some of that time was COVID. So it didn't, you know, that was quite a, a period for everybody, wasn't it? So, um, but one thing, I, and, and what I wanted to do in that role, the reason I wanted to go for that job is that I'd often hear people say to me, oh, Ian, you're really good 
and you'd make it a great account manager or business development because you can see things in the pattern and you can, I thought, oh, okay, I'll listen, I'll listen to you people. And it's like, I'll listen to you, a great idea. And this opportunity came up to work in a sector where I love regeneration. I love build, I love seeing cranes in the sky or things happening because I think it's, it shows change. And I think that's, for me, is very appealing. Um, but I know I'm not smart enough to be building those things. Right? So I was like, well, what's the closest I can get? And that was the thing for that, the Chart Institute of Building. It was all about working with um, construction companies and individuals to support them to achieve chartered status with the aim to drive up standards within the built environment. And that was important to me. And I think, you know, we came, I joined just uh, a year or so after the tragedy at Grenfell. So it was a very important that, you know, there was many reasons that Grenfell happened and quality and standards were part of it that they'd slipped because the industry had, you know, for various reasons. And for me to play a small part in working with others to help raise their standards that they could get chartered themselves or, or the company they work for could achieve a chartered accreditation was really important. And it was fascinating to see the breadth of the projects that the CIAB members were involved in. Um, I, I, I was fortunate I got involved, invited to a number of site visits and it was you'd see firsthand what our members were doing and, and the difference they were making. So, you know, I, meant to, I managed to go to Hinkley Point, which is a, a new uh, power station that's being built in Somerset. Um, I had colleague um, contacts from Transport for London invited me to go and view some of their projects as well. And these are all the things that impact on our day, everyday life. And, and, you know, you step back and you realise what it takes to to create some of these projects. So it was really nice yeah, to, to work with a really good bunch of colleagues at the CIOB, but the, the people that were members of, but also supporting, and the organisations who were supporting their staff to join us was fantastic because they were all keen to strive for improvements in standards and, and quality in construction. So when um, researching you in this episode um, and looking at your career, um, tell me if this is a fair assessment or not, um, the main words that Kate stood out to me was community. You tend to be involved in communities building, and would you say that's fair? I think it's it's fair, but what I, I think it's more that I like to be, I like to join the stuff up, but not lead on it. If that makes sense, right? I, I, I where I can see that people who have got the skills or making a difference, I go, ah, oh, right, hang on. If you join up with that person, then you're going to get something better. I'm not good at. I'm not the person at the front delivering that but i do like you know that, like I said, that sense of community and bringing people together where there's a common interest where i can see the value of, of joining those things up and you're right actually yeah i think when i look at all the roles i've had and, and the same for where i am in the role i've got now it is about the community of our members about the difference that they're making the standards and the quality but again I, like i said I'm, I'm not skilled enough to do the work that they're doing but i can see where they can get benefits of, of joining up and I think we we work better together. I think that's the point of community. It's about we've all got different strengths and different areas of learning or opportunities for learning. And working with different people brings that. You can't do it all on your own. And and that has been something over the the few year last few years for me has been realizing I can't do it all on my own. And you need people around you who can complement where your strengths are or where um you know where weaknesses are, where the opportunities for growth are, who can complement. So that's been something yeah i would say that's a fair assessment so what is it about you that that makes you want to do that and make you good at it you know what was that something you know what what did your parents do for a career or you know 
it's interesting. I suppose in some ways it's it's uh, I what if you ask you yeah you've asked me, but if you were to ask like friends and family and colleagues, they might say something very different. Um, <laughs> I find it very enjoyable when I get a sense of a sense of joy or maybe a state of flow or something when you join something up and you can see that what you thought was going to be a benefit and was going to happen has happened and you and then when others get on they arrive at their same conclusion you go there we go i told you you know i think it's i have had colleagues and and, and friends and family who say sometimes in you go off you're way ahead and then you know you we, they rein me in but i think it's um yeah that's what i get is the enjoyment of seeing the collaboration happen and 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 where people who maybe wouldn't have worked together before, but I've brought them together. And then from that, there's, you know, and there's, you know, there's, there's been a benefit. And there's always an, ex- I always think of this example where I was working at a local authority supporting the voluntary sector. And there were two very different organizations that were there, but I was very much saying, well, actually you're, you could complement, you could work together. And then from that, they were, they did, they started working together and was making a big change. And I think that was my small part, just, bringing them together, not saying they needed to def- necessarily, you must work together, but saying, oh, you should speak to this person. That's always nice because you look back and go, actually, that was my my small intervention. That's what brings me joy, where you have joined, where I've joined something up and the the value, adding value is what I, I really enjoy. So now you're with Federation of Master Builders. So yeah. talk to me about them and, and what you're doing. Well, it's, and it's, again, in terms of the the the, the, the the idea of change i only joined two months ago so two months into the role and um my role is almost it's part ambassadorial so it's, it's making sure that the fmb um is represented across the region i support but it's also understanding and, and doing that um membership engagement so hearing and speaking with our members to understand what challenges they've got to reflect um issues more nationally so we we isn't the federation can make a position and look at what we can do to reflect our members uh, issues and, and needs and it is it's celebrating the quality of our members i i look at the the work that they produce and again like i said earlier i couldn't do that i haven't got the attention to detail or the the focus that's needed for these projects but what these what our members produce and the feedback we get from the clients that they're working for you know, you go. Oh, that's 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 really good. Um, and I say we've got nearly seven thousand um, members across the UK. And I look at what they do, and I think, yeah, that's that's why I'm here because they stand for standards and quality, and they want to make a difference for those they're working with. They are, you know, the best in the industry because they've gone through a process that has meant that they've been vetted and they've independently inspected. And that there's all the peace of mind and they're better again it's that community they're better together they're members because they want to work and, and network and have that almost strength in numbers type thing so um but yeah ask me in six months time what is it and then i'll be like oh what i said that that was very different and this is actually what i do um but it's it is fascinating to to see the complexity of the problem solving and the issues our members face daily the challenges that there's an SME market that they get thrown and yet they overcome them or they find ways around to overcome these challenges. So, so what, what challenges are your members facing on the whole? At the moment, it's things like, you know, we're all feeling things like inflation, which doesn't help material shortages. Um, I think the challenges around um, the issues around some of our members do a lot of work around help home improvements and, and renovations and things like that. 
where they've got maybe customers and clients where they've planned the work and then challenges around uh, the interest rate rises have meant that some of them, that some of those projects have been halted because the, the client can't now afford to do as much work as they wanted to. And then the impact filters through. And then I think also, um, you know, this is my opinion, not necessarily not the FMB's opinion. I think there may be some challenges with some clients who don't appreciate the, the complexities of a build and that they just think it's really easy to phone up their builder and say, oh, can I change my mind? Can I do that this now? And then the builder's like, you can't, you can't just do that. There is, <laughs> you know, and I think there's that education piece for, for, for some for some clients about, you know, if your builder's busy, that's a good thing. You know, if they've got to, I think it's, if there's a waiting list, or they say they can fit you in, but it's going to be in a few months' time. That to me would be a good thing. Um, so that's some of the challenges. But yeah, client expectations is probably the better way to phrase it. Um, I read that forty years ago, SME house builders delivered forty percent of our homes. Today, it's only twelve percent. Mm. Why do you think that is? Why I think is. Um, There are, there are very many reasons. I think some of them are to do with um, political changes. Some of them are to do with society more generally and client expectations. I think if there's political instability or changes, regular changes in either government or in a um, the administration within the government, people's opinion or opinions change on things. And I think that causes... Um, people to go well why am i in this market i don't i need the stability to do what i'm doing and if it keeps changing why am i going to keep doing that and obviously some of the the larger house builders have maybe um picked up a lot of that work and then they've got a lot of the sites and you know they're building volume houses so how can you compete with that because it might be maybe it's a labor shortage issue as well that they're all competing but as I get more closer to understanding and working with our members, um, um, I think if you yeah, again ask me in six months, I'll have a, I'd be able to give I think a much more eloquent response back on that one. Talking of labour shortages, you know, um, and a lot of my audience for the podcast work in student accommodation, build to rent, you know, um, and residential, and we've seen you know late buildings and cost overruns as we always do, but um, and a lot of that is being blamed on labour shortages within construction. So do you think we have we have enough skilled people? Um, and if not, how do we get more skilled people into yeah. into the building industry? Yeah, I think if, if you were to ask me the question and I worked in hospitality, it would be the same issue. I think every sector in the UK especially is suffering with two issues two issues I can see one is they say there are not enough new people joining each of the industries one thing and then we have more people who are leaving the industry and um, we we're all then competing with each other for those people because we say have a skilled job in X, Y or Z it could be any industry and um, yeah I think it, I think also with, with construction, I think it's there is a there is a need to challenge the misconceptions of what it is to work in construction or the built environment. Um, it is a fantastic industry. It can be really rewarding. You, you look at 
we we all are influenced and are touched every day by the built environment which somebody people have built and i think that's it is more than um hard hats and high vis i think there is you know it is it's important for construction to keep looking to diversify the workforce the people that are working in from all sorts of diversity from neurodiversity through to um ethnic diversity it's important you know even that's it, it should be a place where you go yeah i want to work in it but i imagine yeah you work in hospitality you work in farming there will be the same challenges and we are competing for the same people which then raises the costs and then i think also within construction there will be challenges where we have big projects which then people can move quickly to somebody else so you can have people you could have teams of people go i've worked finished this week i'm I'm on that project now and it delays and delays so yeah there's no one easy answer and i imagine if you when you speak with somebody from hospitality or as i say they would be it would be interesting to hear if their issues are, are similar as well and definitely i i speak with um i spent many years in hospitality and got lots of lots of friends still in the industry and and yeah attracting new people particularly i think when um you've seen the rise of home working mm. you know you can't build a building sat behind a desk you can do some things involved with construction but um you know you're out on site and i think you know people have seen a growth in those careers where you, know, you talk to yourself about commuting is hard and getting onto site is hard um but again it's a reputational issue about industry about you know it's it's not all long days and and you know you do learn a, a huge amount as well so um we talk a little bit about politics uh, as uh construction seems to be in the forefront of every politician's mind at the moment yeah. um, but before we get on to more recent uh political issues do you think Brexit has affected that labour market or all the construction industry in general in a good way or maybe not such a good way. Um, I think before I come to, I think there was just something. I, I think for, very quickly. I think is also just going back to the the challenge of construction and attractivity. Is like is also the misconception that it's not a skilled work. Mm. The quality of what I've seen our members do and wouldn't be seen as traditionally skilled. You know, I think it is a misconception. Now, Brexit is it is a it's still divisive now. What are we seven years since? Is it seven years since the vote, it, the, the referendum, and um, there has been impact of that decision. You know, it's very clear to see that there are some sectors who have impacted, and um, perhaps we didn't help ourselves. But there were obviously people, you know, looking at it, thinking there were. Um, there were benefits to it and maybe we will see those benefits more over time when you create <clears throat> um potential friction to help it to for anybody to do anything it's going to have an impact isn't it um and again i'm sure hospitality has the same challenges i'm sure farmers basically saying we see crops in the field all these things where there's there's, there's potentially um a knock-on impact um but it's it, it's difficult, isn't it? You know, it's we've made a decision. A decision was made, and you know, we must find a way through the good and the bad of it. So, we've recently seen um, Labour Party conference. Um, so Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves have been talking a, 
a lot about building and increasing you know the number of houses being built and you know really um helping the construction industry to to increase in size and 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 keep going um now reading from what brian berry obviously the ceo of the fmb was talking about he seemed incredibly positive about um you know the prospect of if the labor government labor end up in government and deliver these things um from what you've heard from speeches from from all sides of the political spectrum um do you think that there's enough appetite and probably maybe the will from government to help the construction industry not only build more houses but also like your members build quality houses mm. yeah i think when yeah when, having worked in local government as i said it's always interesting when there's an election on the horizon and, and you hear these things my experience i say in, in theory i've only worked in the construction industry for five and a bit years and what i have noticed in that time was um politicians see the construction industry as really important you know that's consistently and if we look at when during covid one of the first industries that went back almost within a week or a few days of the announcement of the lockdown was construction to keep the uk economy ticking over and um you know we, we should recognize the importance of construction to the uk anything which makes it easier to build quality houses in the places that they're needed should be welcomed i think and it doesn't matter which political party is saying that if that's what we want um i think there are and again this is my personal opinion i think there are challenges with some of the uh planning systems that we have they're very convoluted and i think having um changes with um even changes of minister within a portfolio means that positions can change and things change. Things can be delayed, which doesn't give anybody any certainty. So how can you know to plan to do anything if suddenly you've started something and then it's changed because somebody's decided to do it slightly differently? Um, I know I'm, I'm, I don't know. I think our members would welcome the opportunity to have um, can sort of the opportunity to refresh the planning system. To make sure that it's fit for purpose and i'm sure local authorities who are responsible for planning would welcome more resource to help deal with the applications and the training that's needed to understand the complexities of these issues um, and it comes back right down to uh, resources not just in the construction industry but let's take local authorities have they got the resources they need in the right places to you know assess planning applications in a timely fashion which gives everybody the the confidence to get on to get the spades in the ground and get things built if it's not there things start slowing down and then you know we're back to square one so but yeah where where are we towards the end of 2023 in a year's time maybe there'll have been an election or there'll be one on the horizon so 18 months time we'll know maybe less than that you know has thing have things improved but it will take time that's one of the things on the list to ask you about is um is the planning system um you know and i i know a lot of town planners um and i know a lot of developers as well so i i see it from both sides and you know clearly those departments are under resourced and again my personal opinion planners are very underpaid for the work that they do um but other than 
just throwing a load of money at the planning system. How can we make it easier? Because we've seen, you know, I was talking to somebody recently on on this on this podcast about, you know, a planning application that would normally take them 10 months. They're still waiting 18 months later. Mm-hmm. And it's not particularly complex, um, you know, and and that's that's money that can't go back into the system because if you want to, if you're putting in a planning application, you want to spend money, right? Um, so might be we might have already answered the question just hire more planners and pay them more but if you could wave a magic wand over the over the uk planning system how would you how would you reform it if i made you housing minister if you made me housing minister then, <laughs> yeah it depends how long i had the, the, the portfolio had the, how yeah probably not very long not given very the long. Uh... <laughs> i yeah i think it's and i i'm like you i've, I've got friends who are who are planners and they've they started their career in uh, the local authority planning and then have moved to private planning in effect you know putting the the applications in on behalf of clients into the local authorities because they know the system mm-hmm. um there there is a balance isn't there between throwing resources at something because that's what you need and then going well can't keep put if it's not making any difference and um what the what there is a definite need for more resource but i think it's um it has to be tempered with what you need to see the improve. You'd need to be seeing the, the turnaround of applications. And again, it might be how many planners are coming into the industry. Is it, is it, and I don't know the figures, so I, I can't comment. I wonder if, if the numbers are not people coming in, it makes it difficult because people who are interested in planning know that they'll, well, so I'll do a local authority job for a little bit of time and then I'm going to move to a private planner because the pay is better because the client is because actually if i if i understand the planning regulations or do the people go i don't even want to come to local authorities because i'm seeing that you know they're just getting grief because nobody nobody likes planning type thing it's like it doesn't matter there's always, so there's always there's always a contention with some plan with a planning issue isn't there whatever it is so you know do you want to be that person whose name's at the bottom of the report recommending it for approval or not um i don't know maybe that's why i'm not a planner <laughs> I'm definitely on a mission to improve uh, people's uh, perception of planners. Uh, albeit, I agree the planning system needs a, needs a huge overhaul. Um, so, oh, obviously, in your role with the FMB, um, and it's sort of around you know helping all members and together to increase building standards. So, how do the FMB help your members? And I know you've not been there very long. Uh, how you know how do you go about? with your members raising the standards in the industry? Yeah. The, 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 I suppose the, the one of the main things is that the FMB was set up by our members and is run by our members. So that they have a vested interest in the the standards of the industry. They want to be again, that community. They want and they know that other members are meeting that high standard. So as I mentioned, that those they need to, they have a, anybody who wishes to join is independently assessed and they're vetted for the standard of their work. You know, we go out or an independent person goes out and inspects the quality of the work and some people will apply and not be successful mm-hmm. um, because we want to keep driving the standards. And, and and one of the key campaigns we have at the FMB is around license, looking to have a licensing system in the UK construction industry because at the moment, anybody could set themselves, anybody could do building. Now, I could tomorrow go and start building. As long as I meet building regs, yeah, then I could build something. And it's interesting. I think this is where there's an interesting one is that if we look at all the stages from 
design and concept is designed to build, everything's regulated up until you're building it in theory. And it means that, yeah, and it's like the biggest amount of money you're spending. If you're building a house, like not all our members, you know, we have house builders, but they're not all house builders. But the, for the members who are doing house building, as an example, um, they want to be able to demonstrate to their clients that they have got those, they've met their standards and they want to um, call out, I suppose, the the, the rogues within mm. the industry who give the, rec- the industry a bad reputation, you know. And that's why a licensing system would work because it would mean you'd have to join. And that's what we're campaigning. One of the things we're campaigning for is to keep raising those standards to look at having a UK licensing system for across construction. Um, and again, and that's why part of it, you know, it's interesting because at the moment we're able to have conversations with the government and the opposition to talk to them about the importance. Of that. That's not to say you mentioned Brian, yeah, that's what the work is doing with our policy team in the UK, with England and obviously the, the devolved administrations is understanding of why it's important to have these standards you know if you think that yeah you're having an extension built and it could be costing you half the money you paid for your house as an example but there's no um that you could appoint anybody to do that work mm-hmm. you, it, it just seems it seems odd that the, the biggest and one of the biggest amounts of money you're going to spend there are no required checks in place on that person doing that work other than you know you might get some reviews whereas People using a federation of master builders, using our find a builder service, know that that person has been assessed, that works there, and then there's like a dispute resolution service. You know, I think that's what's really good. Um, but yeah, that's that's how we're helping our members. We're that collective voice. So our first seven thousand members across the UK, we're the collective voice for the issues that matter to them. From, as I mentioned, from skills and the new entrants coming into the industry, through to material shortages and other challenges that they might be facing we are representing them on their behalf to the key stakeholders like government and then make helping make a difference to see these things come in so going off a complete tangent yeah. you were involved in the olympic torch relay how did that come about that came about uh, um <laughs> yeah that's i, I like that, that, that um, <laughs> it came about as, as i mentioned I, w- I was working at um Ketterinburg council and and it came about the reason that it came to me in the end was because a, a, there was a period of change where the other manager that was in the team at the time, he just got a new role elsewhere. He was just appointed. And so there was a slight restructure because they were like, well, we're not going to fully replace that role. So we'll divvy, we'll split the work he had between the other managers that existed that were left. And uh, events fell to me because I was looking after some of it, which was sort of the latest. Oh, okay, cool. And then obviously, um, so a few months later, we then get um, a letter. I think it was a letter that comes and says, we would like to invite you to, um, it, it was it was nicely worded in something way. It was like, there was no choice. We, we, it was like, we, we strongly recommend you attend this event <laughs> where we're going to talk about the torch relay route, which you might be interested in. We're like, oh, okay, right, we'll better go to the event. So I went along with the, the leader of the council and they were like, right, you're basically you're here because the, shh, don't tell anyone, the Olympic torch relay route is coming through your borough on its way to the Olympic Stadium. I was like, okay. Um, so yeah, it, so, it, so the, the reason it came to me was it was a quirk in, a colleague, a former colleague, getting leaving and, and, and responsibility. So again, it's that change element. But it was so fascinating to see 
how something like that, again, playing a small part in, in it, um, how it goes, how it's played, how it all plays out and what goes into it. But it was wonderful. I, I went on a, um, just in the run up to it. So we were organizing things. We were doing like local events to really celebrate it with the schools. And I had a number of colleagues who were so good at supporting with that detail. You know, they were really getting, they were loving it. And, and it was, you know, like I could once in a generation type thing to be involved with. But I was able to go to a, a test run that they were doing. Um, and it was in Melton Mowbray, right near where I lived at the time. And I just was wondering, because I wanted to see what happened, like what the road, how the road closes, all this sort of stuff work. And I got there, followed it. And I got a bit of time between I needed to go and see the next bit. And there was just this van and it was all branded up with 2012. And in the back of it, they'd got some replica torches. Well, they weren't the replica, the ones they were going to get. And it was fascinating. So I got my photo tag because it was the only chance I was going to get at any point <laughs> to have some evidence that I'd been involved. Um, but it was, again, it's that community thing. It was bringing all of these people together to benefit and it was just such a wonderful day when when the I think it was the second of July, twenty twelve, when it came through Kettering Borough, and it was it, it it rained. It chucked it down with rain all morning. Typical, all day, all, <laughs> typical. And then you're thinking, oh, this is great now. What do we do? And then yet, yeah, all the way along the route, thousands of people were in the town centre. There were people, you know, they, they, they were hours before anything happened. And again, the, the the community that came together to enjoy that day, the schools, the community groups, the whatever it was, but all those involved as well could step back, and it was like it was lovely because it meant that we could involve colleagues in the event that hadn't wouldn't normally get involved in something like that because their role was very. We may have had colleagues from planning helping us, <laughs> you know, um, and it was very interesting. But it was it was one of, you know I look back and it's like a, a career highlight because it was mm-hmm. it's something that everybody can remember. Well, as long as you were born or around at that time, you can remember it. Yeah, that was a great day. So I played a tiny little part. And um, yeah, that was a really nice thing to get involved with. Okay, so now we've come on to the quick fire round questions, um, which I know everyone looks forward to that comes on the podcast. (laughs) Um, If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I would just change it so we we were more supportive of each other. Yeah, we, we we seem to have at times some really petty arguments. It's some, you know, just can't we? Why? Let's just not have pettiness. I suppose that would be the that's my um, nice answer. A, a smart, you know, a, a flippant answer would be what would I change? It would be something like um, I would change the fact that I can't get mobile phone reception. There needs to be consistent mobile phone reception when I'm on the train so I can work. That sort of thing, you know, that's what I would change. Living in Norfolk, that's very important. Um, and what advice would you give to someone who wants to change their direction but doesn't know where to start? Yeah, I think that's, that's I would ask, I would ask yourself, what's the motivation for the change? Um, what do you want? To, what is it you want to get at? What is the purpose for that change? And then is it for change for change's sake, which I, for me is not the right thing? Or is it because you can see that there's going to be the positives of you making that change outweigh? And it's, you know, yeah, so that, that with it, you know, what's the motivation and yeah, what will you learn from it? And sometimes the change is not to make the change, you know. So that, that, that's on that one, yeah. And what's going to be your next big change? My next big change will be, um, I think, having, so we, we've just moved 
and I started a job within the space of like five days. So there's a lot of change there. But the next change will be we're, we're, we're renting at the moment. So the next big change will be inevitably at some point, then looking to to move, which brings all the other changes and all the other challenges of, of, of that. So that will be the next the next thing of changing all the addresses and updating all those things again that you have to change. It's hard. I, it's not every, every, every time I move house, I say, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. Uh, and you always end up moving. Um, but I've said it this time, I'm never moving again. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's what I have noticed. Because I say we've, we've recently moved to the east. That, um, if the wind's blowing in the right direction, it seems, I can get 5G. If it turns around the other way, there's no chance. Yeah, it's very strange. <laughs> and the question that makes everyone nervous, the last one, if you were to recommend a guest for me to speak to on a podcast. Who would it be and why? I was to recommend a guest. Oh, there are so many because I think in the in the, in the, you, in the, you can the do more of, than one. The idea of change. <laughs> now again, is it? Is it um, oh, I interestingly, I, I tell you, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts at the moment, and um, and one I've listened to, and I I would I, um, I have to write it down because I always forget the name of it. Um, it, it, it's a chap called um, Shankar Vedantan. I, I think I've pronounced his name probably terribly, but he has a podcast called Hidden Brain, and and that for me is fascinating because it's about you know that hidden part of our brain we don't realise. Yeah. But I find him so fascinating to listen to as a, as a person and, and as um, as that sort of things. Um, but also just another person to is um, I don't suppose any of my former because I'm going to say someone now. If I said to one of my former colleagues, I'd be like, well, why didn't you mention that other person? So. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think it's. Let me think. I'll, I will come back to. I'll, I will email you with that one because I. I will. I will think of because I'm going to have uh, people know I'm doing this recording and they'll come back to me. So did you mention me to do? Uh, <laughs> so I will. I'll have to email you some. Just reel off a log list. Yeah, yeah log list of people. <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to say thanks very much, Ian, for joining me today. I mean, um, we 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 covered a lot there through politics, through construction, your career, and even the Olympic torch relay um and i know you've not been with the fmb for long but um you know more power to the organization because you know i think we we hit the nail on the head well you did when you were talking about how important the sector is for for employing people and for just keeping keeping everything going you know um it's so important um to us so um so yeah just thanks very much i really enjoyed it thanks Gary. it's been a pleasure